we grew up with kind of the rise of true crime in the sense that it was so much more accessible to us. I mean, yeah. like we watched Unsolved Mysteries. We watched Rescue 911. All of that was like on the TV, big, right? First and with my mom's. You think too, like a lot of the big trials of the 90s were televised for the first time, like O.J. Simpson, John Benet Ramsey, the Menendez brothers. Like that was a part of our formative years. I mean, I was in high school when the O.J. Simpson trial went down and I still vividly remember sitting around the TV with the family watching that. Welcome back to the I'm the Villain. Today, we are going to be talking about true crime with Joy, who is another podcaster in our podcast network. Um, Joy, do you want to just give a quick um, introduction, whatever you think the audience should know about you? Sure. Uh, well, my name is Joy Scaglione. I am in my full-time day job. I'm a school librarian in South Carolina, little elementary kids who don't know anything about true crime, hopefully. <laughs> um, but in my uh, not day job, um, I really love true crime. I've been into it since I was a, a kid, really, and since middle school. And so I started doing the podcast about a year ago. It's called Bite Sized Crime. Um, all of my episodes are less than 20 minutes. A lot of it was I just didn't want to record really long podcasts because then I would have to edit really long podcasts. Uh -huh. So I wanted to keep them short and focus on you know, crimes that are don't always get the attention that they deserve. So that's kind of the the shtick, I suppose, is that you've got bite sized episodes. They're they're cases you might not have heard of, sometimes current, sometimes a little further in the past. Um, but it's been a really good hobby for me in a way. And it's really helped me kind of branch out and meet a lot of new people um, and a lot of people who are really into true crime. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I am one of those people very into true crime. Isabel, do you have any true crime experience? No, I I mean, I think I maybe watched Serial, but that's like everyone's watched Serial. Or yeah. to serial. I feel like Serial um, is a lot of people's introduction into true crime. Yeah, I did listen uh, or I did do some research before this on who like the demographics of people who listen to true crime. Oh, I'm excited. I don't I, I have guesses, but I don't know. What is your guess before my guess I is say mostly white women? That's my guess. Yeah, it is mostly women. I don't think I saw anything that actually broke down the racial component. Um. The theory is that A, um, you're listening because often women are the victims of true crime, so they're like trying to figure out how to not get murdered. Shut <laughs> <laughs> <Straight> up. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah. Um, and like, it, I, so it seems like there's a breakdown between, in terms of violence in general, like men tend to be, gravitate more towards like war and gang stuff as opposed to like true crime. Um, and they're, yeah, they're not really sure why that is, but. Um, there's, there's a big population of like, yeah, women out there who are really, who are really into true crime. I, I, I don't know if there's like more explanation beyond the trying to not mm. get murdered thing. <laughs> Joy, do either of those explanations yeah. ring true to you? Yes, definitely. So I've put a lot of thought into this, especially since starting the podcast and just finding more people who are as obsessed as with true crime as I am. Um, and really starting to think about like, why am I so obsessed with it? Now I do have kind of an obsessive personality once I'm really into something, I'm really, right. really into it. Um, but it's like, what is it about true crime that, you know, even people that you wouldn't necessarily think would be into true crime? Why are they also into true crime? And a lot of it, you're right, is 
a lot of it is white women um, because we do tend to be victims um, and not just white women, women in general and um, marginalized communities, especially like mm-hmm. that victim what's the word I'm looking for. Like that cloud is always hanging over us of like, I could be the victim. And for me, after much self-analysis, it's really a way to get a sense of control, you know, because, you know, as a woman, when you go out, you don't know, like anyone that you come across, especially men, any of those could be someone who could harm you. And, you know, you hear people say not all men, blah, 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 but a lot of men. And so that's kind of the reality that we live in, Um, especially I'm a single woman. I live alone. You know, I have three big dogs to protect me. But it's it's one of those things that you're always thinking about when you get in your car, you look in the back seat. You know, you walk through the parking lot with your keys in your hand. And, Mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things are just always a part of our like part of our brain. They're just always floating back there. And I think true crime is a, in a way gives us that little bit of control back. Like, well, if I know how it happened to her, maybe I can prevent it happening to me. Maybe I can prepare myself, you know, and that might be a fool's errand, but it's a way to empower ourselves to think like, okay, if I'm understanding why someone might try to hurt me this way or what this person did to this other person, it gives me that sense of power like okay maybe i could stop it maybe if i did this instead i could change this course of events whether Mm -hmm. that's true or not but i think at least for me and i think for a lot of women um that is kind of that sense of empowerment and it validates our fears too when you find someone else who also is into true crime and they you know you get into it and you realize oh i'm not alone in my fear of (laughs) being murdered or whatever it is you know there's other people who have those fears too um, and true crime has really become like a community. Um, and, you know, you, you try to bring some humor into it. I know um, that a lot of podcasts and things kind of, you know, they add like a humor element to it. And I think a lot of that just comes from that fear of like, if we joke about it, maybe it will be a little less scary. Yeah, I so, think a lot of people cope with like scary shit by laughing at it. Yeah, exactly. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like I grew up also very afraid of being murdered or harmed by somebody so maybe that is like maybe that is contributing to my my true crime obsession as well i don't know like i i would like lay awake at night being afraid of someone like trying to get in through my window oh yeah that was always a fear stranger danger we were the generation who grew up learning about stranger danger and you know i am an elder millennial i was born in 82 and so like our generation, especially those of us in our 30s and 40s right now, like we grew up with kind of the rise of true crime in the sense that it was so much more accessible to us. I mean, yeah. like we watched Unsolved Mysteries. We watched Rescue 911. The All of that was like on the was TV, big, right? First and was my mom's. You think too, like a lot of the big trials of the 90s were televised for the first time, like OJ Simpson, John Benet Ramsey, the Menendez brothers, like that was a part of our formative years. I mean, I was in high school when the OJ Simpson trial went down and I still vividly remember sitting around the TV with the family watching that. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, then as like we get older, like in the early two thousands, I was, you know, finishing high school, getting ready to college. That was when we had like Scott Peterson, Casey Anthony, like all of that. And that was big when they said trials of the century, like they really meant it because we were all having that, community experience of watching these cases unfold 
And now, I mean, there's so much with the internet and everything, which was also like our generation. We were the ones who kind of grew up with the internet kind of, I mean, I think I was in third grade when we got computers in my school and then, you know, having internet at home, dial up internet, very exciting. And, (laughs) you know, trying to like always find more information about things like that was our generation. We were the ones to really first experience that kind of reality TV, um, especially when crime was a part of it. Yeah. Isabel, have you, have you dabbled in any? Hmm. No, I feel like it's like what what you described is very like it, it feels to me like the modern day going to watch someone get hung or something. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like we all have this weird fascination with like, you know, people who kill people and, and stuff like that. Like it's the gladiator kind of phenomenon. Yeah. You know, I think that's a good it's a good transition into like how I don't I really don't know how problematic it is. You know, like I, I kind of it feels weird a little bit, right? To like be consuming stories about people, you know, being assaulted and sexually assaulted and murdered, um, for entertainment. But then there's like also this other side of joy that you were kind of talking about of like I do feel like I'm more prepped. I have made lifestyle changes to be like to make it less likely for me to get murdered. You know, like, and also I'm entertained by this. Like these, like this is. <laughs> how this is media that I consume. I don't know. Joy, do you have thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I pretty much, I shouldn't say exclusively, but let's be honest. I pretty much exclusively consume true crime um, podcasts. I love documentaries, um, that sort of thing. And, you know, for all the reasons that we talked about before, but you're right. It's very easy for it to become sensationalized. You know, I mean, especially you, I mean, you turn on the news. I mean, it's, like, I don't know if how familiar y'all were with the Gabby Petito case, right? So that was a yeah, big one that, that was... came into the news. And it really brought up the conversation of um, missing white woman syndrome. Because, you know, Gabby was this young blonde um, influencer. She was always on Instagram, you know. And spoiler alert, her um, her significant other murdered her. And it became a big case. And a lot of it was because she was online. And, you know, we could tear that apart for an hour. But point is is it became such a a nugget of the news cycle you know everyone was talking about the gabby petito case and even still like as headlines come out like everybody knows about it it's the big thing but then there's you know hundreds and hundreds of cases of women in particular but you know other other genders and identities as well but who are being murdered or going missing and nobody's talking about it because we are in such like a 24-hour news cycle um and it's easy to become desensitized to that. I don't know if you've experienced that, DeAndre, as you, you know, consume true crime is like you find yourself like absorbing all of these graphic details sometimes and almost not even registering it. And so and that can be really hard. Like I try to check mm-hmm. myself, like, am I listening to this just for the entertainment value or like am I trying to, you know, really listen to this person's story? Am I trying to focus on the victim? And you know, like I said, I consume a lot of true crime content um, and podcasts tend to kind of fall on that spectrum. Sorry, my dogs. Podcasts tend to fall on that spectrum of easy to sensationalize or yeah. to kind of turn it more into the the entertainment genre. Um, and I won't you know, I won't name any names, um, but there's certainly podcasts that I've listened to that sometimes I just kind of feel that ick, you know, like 
should we really be laughing about this? And I'm all for humor. Like, I love to laugh. I, you know, obviously there is kind of a dark humor that comes with true crime, but you never want it to come at at the expense of the victim or their family. And I think sometimes people kind of cross the line with that. Yeah, Um, I think we're probably thinking about the same show. Yeah, (laughs) we probably are. Um, And like I said, I love to laugh. You know, I, I, I think humor is a way that we kind of deflect and almost protect ourselves against some of the scarier things. But I never want it to be said of me or my podcast that, you know, I was exploiting someone's pain or, you know, making fun of something. Um, you know, my goal, I, I hope it's okay if I kind of dig into like this part, feel free to yeah, cut whatever sure. you want. But my goal with my podcast is really to focus on the victims and focus on the facts of the case. Um, I try not to editorialize when I'm doing my research. So my episodes are really short. You know, I really try to get down to the facts of the case and bring awareness. And I just want so hard to, I I really want to be sensitive to the victims and their families. I've been reached out to, you know, on Instagram through email uh, from victims' families. And sometimes even like, hey, can you cover my brother's case? He's missing. Or, you know, thank you for covering my cousin's case, you know, all these things. And I, I take that responsibility seriously. You know, I don't, I don't ever include information that I can't corroborate because every once in a while you'll find like a little nugget in some random article and you're like, Ooh, that would be interesting, but you can't see it anywhere else, you know? And if I can't corroborate, that's true. I'm not putting it in, you know, because it could be something that's not true. It could be something that could hurt the case that could hurt a victim's family. You know, I never want that to be a stumbling block. So, um, but that can be really tricky. It can be really tricky to want to get those interesting facts, but also like be sensitive in the process. Yeah. Wait, I have a really basic question. Sure. Where do you even get the information on these cases to begin with? Okay. Well, I am an obsessive researcher. Okay. Like, I don't know if part of that's mm-hmm. being like a, a librarian. A librarian. Um, oh, by the way, my fiance is a librarian. Oh, yeah, it's heard, the best job. Yeah, when she heard that it. I was interviewing you, she was like, oh, she's a school librarian. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yes. <laughs> yes, I love it. Do y'all know anything about the Enneagram either? Yeah, I mean, you can cut this if not. But um, I'm an Enneagram five. And so I am like obsessed with information. And like, I'm always trying to like gather information around me um, in order to feel safe. And so when I do my research... I usually just start out with a basic Google search, you know, and I, the way I set my research up is I will find every single news article I can find. And sometimes it's like four or five articles. Sometimes it's like 30 articles. It just kind of depends on the case, what coverage Um, I can go back into the newspaper archives. And like, I do a really deep dive. Sometimes I'll go on to like Reddit or web sleuths, but that's a slippery slope. And I like never use that as like a primary source, but sometimes they can lead to other things that I might not have found otherwise. Um, And then I just compile it all together. And sometimes, you know, just of like the outline, I might have like 20 pages of just random news. And then I try to consolidate it down into about five pages of script for the podcast and just really get down to just the facts. which can be hard. It takes a while. Like I pretty much, it takes me pretty much all week to do an episode. Um, so that's why I was like, I can't imagine people who <laughs> script who out like two hour, hour long, like, Oh my gosh, I would go crazy. But, um, but again, like I really want to focus on the facts. I don't want it to just be like, Oh, I'm churning out podcasts, you know? 
I want to make sure that what I put out is correct information, uh, you know, as best as I can, and that it's just respectful of the victims. So I hope that answered your question. Yeah. I mean, I guess, is that information... I mean, obviously, if it's on the news, it's public information. But, like, are there court... Like, for the most part, when you have that type of, um, like, court proceedings, is all of the stuff that happens public? It depends on the state. Um, So there are some cases where I can get, you know, full pages of court transcripts or police reports. um, And I'll pour through those and I'll take notes on those. And sometimes it's hard to find anything. Um, and, you know, because I don't, you know, I'm not a lawyer or anything and there's, I don't have like access to certain things. Um, but again, like if I can't corroborate it, generally if it's reported on like a legitimate news site, especially like mm-hmm. a local news, um, then you can tend to find that repeated in other local news sources. Yeah. Um, but if I can get court transcripts and I can get, you know, um, especially police reports, you get so much information because they have to write down everything. Um, then that's really like a gold mine. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes I find like a really interesting case or one that, you know, I just really want to do and there's no information out there. And so I sometimes like I keep like a running list of cases that I want to cover. Um, and sometimes I'll just kind of put it on the shelf for a little bit and hope that more information will come. And that's again, like going back to that missing white woman syndrome, like, yeah, there's it's oftentimes the cases like the stories that don't get told. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I don't have like the resources or the connections to like, you know, I don't also want to reach out to like a family and be like, hey, can I cover your case for my, you know, I like for me, I don't feel like I'm at that point yet where I can reach out to someone else, if that makes sense. But uh, sometimes there's just not a lot of information and that makes it really hard and really sad too, because sometimes the families are just begging for coverage and they just can't get it. Yeah. Isabel, I think the biggest distinction from like the the true crime, at least like a lot of the modern true crime podcasts that I listen to, and um like the going like the gladiator syndrome and like going to watch someone get lynched is that I think that a lot of people and a lot of podcasts really make a point of trying to create some like some kind of good or some kind of call to action from their from the stories, you know? I think there's like I think there's like a baseline. I think there's a I think it's good to know that people do get murdered and how people get murdered. You know, like I think it's like I think that like that's a, it's just a good from a safety standpoint I think it's good to understand that that stuff does happen. Um and then beyond that, I mean, a lot of times it's like this, you know, I listen to a lot of crime junkie for example, and I think they do an especially good job of like covering a person that like is either still missing or like there's like some big leads that are missing in the case and like using the community to call for you know if anyone knows anything about this or like sign this petition to get this case reopened it's a huge one and like message the police department to like reopen the case and like calling out police misconduct is a huge fucking thing is like one thing that i've learned a ton of and as i've listened to true crime is that like a lot of times uh cases are handled just so fucking badly just really 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 aggressively badly and you know these are things that like before the era of true crime, especially true crime podcasts, like these kinds of things would just be done behind closed doors. Like cops wouldn't be held accountable for how they handled investigations. That's that's really interesting because I do feel like I you know I 
there's a part of me that's like, why is this stuff even public at all? Like, especially if the families might not right. want to um, have it be public. But I guess like having that element of the police accountability and like right. people are watching. And, what, what's and you need that because like, really what I've learned, a lot of times police just do a really, really bad job straight up. Like they're like, you know, they select, you know, they decide who they think did it and then only investigate that person and ignore other leads. Or sometimes if it's like a lot of times they hear about people that like, you know, up, up the I think the other side of the coin of the of the missing white woman syndrome is like the public and press are really interested in it, and also cops take certain demographics of people being missing and being murdered way more seriously than other people being missing missing and murdered. Um, and so I think they're like, you know, like there is obviously like a sort of morbid curiosity and entertainment factor, but I do think that you know there is this element of like wanting to create change and wanting to help that a lot of people do come to this with you know yeah i think you're exactly right i i also agree crime junkie does a fantastic job and that's something that i i've really taken to heart too like i never want it to feel like i'm just telling the story you know um especially because a lot of the cases that i hear about or even that i cover they stick with me. Um, and, you know, I'm sure, DeAndre, you probably have some cases that are just always kind of in the back of your mind yeah. that you're you're always yes. thinking about. And um, the very first case that I covered on my podcast was of a little girl who went missing and was eventually found ki killed um, right from nearby. I mean, maybe 20 miles from me. And every once in a while, I will go past her neighborhood and there's always like a little memorial there. And like her case is always with me um, because it's so like I remember when it happened, you know, it was just a few years ago. And it's like those kinds of things. You want those stories to stick with you in that way, not in that morbid fascination way, but in that like my heart feels for them kind of way. Um, and there are some cases that just do that and you want to take action for that. And I, I love what you brought up about, you know, the the transparency and accountability for the police departments. Um, and, you know, cause there are some fantastic departments who are doing wonderful work on cases. And sometimes it comes down to, you know, access to the information that they have or, you know, how experienced they are in solving these crimes. But the accountability is so important. The one thing that just infuriates me so much is when you hear that evidence was mishandled or just, the evidence disappeared. We yep, don't know where that is. Gone. And we it don't know makes it me crazy. I'm like, that's literally your job is to preserve the evidence. And how are you going to solve the crime without it? Like, oh, I don't I just I don't know where that bloody knife went. So weird. I don't know. Like it. I, I it's it happens so often yeah, and it makes it me so crazy. <laughs> it makes me crazy. Because it's oh like because at the end of the day, like a lot of these. I mean, there might be processes in name. To like audit investigations by cops, mm -hmm. but a lot of times there aren't the pro the processes aren't there, right? They can just do what they want, and then like, you know, if the family makes a big enough stink, then like the DA might look into the police, like the the mm -hmm. police department's actions, or the FBI might look into how it was handled. But like, a lot of times, like there aren't really people to to make sure, like to impose, for example, to impose any consequences if evidence is lost, right? Or like to impose consequences if like clearly you know if clearly the cops didn't take this case seriously right wait i don't even understand like does evidence 
get, get lost. lost to the yes. point at which like it seems like a actually like intentional thing yeah sometimes yeah. Mm-hmm. it's not you know like, like and, if you have like the bloody knife in your whatever police department building like yeah it happens how a lot does with, that happen that's a great question isabel <laughs> that's a very good question i mean it happens a lot with older cases especially right it's like this you know someone was killed in like in like you know 85 and you know cops are supposed to hold on to the, you're supposed to hold on to the evidence and you know like it might not be the bloody knife but it might be like the pair of jeans that was never tested or like you know like a rag that was recovered at the scene that like looked like it had blood on it you know like think small things like that might go missing and i think i'm i am a big proponent of like oftentimes the simplest explanation is what happened and so i think a lot of times it is just people being incompetent and like and losing something right like i don't think that that it i do think that sometimes evidence is intentionally lost but it's like you know i try to i try to hold back the conspiracy theorists in me because a lot of times a lot of times this is the thing and this is like it's kind of funny but it's not funny sometimes the cops do such a fucking bad job that that you're like there's no way this wasn't a cover-up and actually, it was just them doing a really fucking bad job. The question of like, why wasn't this person interviewed seems so aggressively blatant that like, oh, the police must have just not wanted to interview that person. Like they must not, they must, something must be happening here. And sometimes it literally is just because that person was never interviewed. They just didn't do it. Or sometimes it's that they didn't check the security tapes at the gas station, you know, things like that. It's like, there's certain things that should be like those first few steps that they take, like and then they just don't take them or they wait too long or, you know, like you were saying, sometimes they have one person in mind and they just go yeah. down that rabbit trail and they a, ignore everything else. They have a ton of discretion. They can mm-hmm. decide how they want to handle the case. And like, like I said, there's no, I mean, there are like things that there are a bunch of tools in and in, a, in, a, in, a, in an investigator's tool belt. And one might argue that there are situations or that like there are like four things that automatically should be done whenever anyone goes missing or is murdered. I might argue that, for example. <laughs> um, I would agree. <laughs> but at the end of the day, that doesn't really exist. Investigators get to get to decide how they want to handle the case. And if they're, you know, like. And, you know, if they decide that they don't want to interview this person, I mean, like. Ultimately, there's not a lot of people that can tell them that, that they have to. Um, That's very true. And so I, I think I think cop accountability is a big a big part of I didn't expect that to come from what from my like interest in true crime. I started listening to true crime maybe like like four years ago, five years ago. And I like, you know, I woke up I grew up watching Unsolved Mysteries and stuff like that, but I didn't expect that to come from my interest in true crime when I started listening to it, but it's become one of the biggest things for me, one of the biggest themes. It's like cops, like especially with these notorious cases or cases that get covered on podcasts, a lot of times the case was very solvable at some point and then something, some time limit was missed or something was lost and now it's not really solvable. Yeah, I think um, a perfect example of that is John Benet Ramsey. I mean, that's like one of the biggest cases everybody knows. Yeah, and that's one big, of big mine case. that I'm like, and I mean, I hate to say it, but that's one that's never going to be solved. And it's because the crime scene was so compromised and the cops did such a horrible job with the right. evidence and just everything was a mess. Yeah. Um, and you know, this was back in 
the nineties and you know, hopefully things have improved. And I know that John Ramsey is asking for DNA evidence to be tested, but I'm like, but what evidence? Like it was so messed up. How are yeah. they ever going to solve that? And it's one of those that's just so infuriating. Yeah. Um, Isabel, a five, a, 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 like a, a quick elevator pitch for John Bonet Ramsey was that <laughs> she was, I can't remember how old we are. She was a girl, like a young, young six. girl, six year old girl, um, found murdered in her house. Um, but at first the parents or one parent reported her missing or called the cops or something like that. And, um, whilst the, like the cops came and like did not secure the crime scene and like, like dozens of people would just walk through all throughout the entire house. She ended up being found in her like basement. Um, dead. And because of that, like, you know, almost all of the evidence from the, from the crime scene was tainted. Like there's footprints everywhere. There's fingerprints everywhere. Um, you can't isolate anything. And one of like number one thing you do, even if you don't think it's a crime scene, like you don't like, you know, you're not sure you shouldn't be letting people walk through a walk throughout the house that aren't authorized to be there. So. And unfortunately that just happens a lot and it just shouldn't like, to me, it seems like common sense, but I guess maybe in the moment, the, yeah people are just not thinking i don't know but i think going when back that happens to the, it's frustrating going back to the demographic thing we were talking about mm -hmm. i think that when the cops showed up to the ramsey house which is, i mean they're like they were a really wealthy white family i'm sure they thought that there was no situation under which they had anything to do with it you know like but even that right like if someone broke into the house you should be isolating the crime scene if someone if a, if a kid goes missing from the house you should try to figure out what happened in the house yeah, <laughs> um but yeah you know it's just like i think it had a lot to do with who the ramses were i agree sure so do either of you feel like having like hearing all of these stories kind of gives you a totally like disproportionate sense of how dangerous the world is yes probably <laughs> you know probably because like you know in reality like the percentage of these crimes is like super low right yeah i mean you're not likely to be murdered right just generally sure. you're yeah. not likely to be murdered <laughs> right you're even less likely to be murdered by a serial killer but a lot of the coverage that i think i listen to and probably joy listens to are not about serial killers they're a lot of them are about like one-off killings um like i remember in like there was like this woman who got murdered in rock creek park and now that's like the only thing i ever know about rock creek park and as if it's like this dangerous place about, but like yeah. right and it's just like well that doesn't make rock creek park inherently dangerous because it's like you know i'm sure if there was a super murderer like they would find some other place it's like there's nothing inherent to that place, yeah I, I see what right? you mean i mean like i think also it's i think the same thing is feeding like when people are in when people are in the country or like in remote places they're like damn i'm gonna get murdered out here and like dude in all actuality you're way more likely to be harmed like in these in on the streets like just somewhere but um yeah yeah i think that yes well i think yes. statistically too statistically let's use women as the example because you know they're <laughs> tend to be the victims um women are most likely to be murdered by an intimate partner Right. It's not right. usually a stranger walking down the street. Now, I mean, that does happen. But like you said, it's fairly rare. Like if I was to go walking, you know, out in the Walmart parking lot, probably not going to be murdered. Now, does that mean that I'm not going to keep my eye out? 
no, of course. Like, I think that's ingrained in me as, as a woman, especially like keep an eye out. You never know. Like there's always some weird guy in the Walmart parking lot. Um, but you know, generally like children are kidnapped or harmed by someone that they know. It's very rarely that stranger danger that we grew up learning about. You know, most people are harmed by someone who they know. Um, and so, yes, there is that a little bit of a sense of paranoia of like everyone in the world is out to get me. I'm probably going to get murdered. Um, and I think that's why we, you know, we share our location with our friends. You know, like if I'm going somewhere that maybe I haven't been before, I might, you know, text my best friend like, hey, here's the address I'm going to be at. I'll check in in 10 minutes, you know, and, and some of that is just good practice you know, because you just you never know what might happen. But there is also a little bit of that paranoia. Like sometimes the first time when I go somewhere, I'm like, I'm probably going to get murdered here, you know, and <laughs> some of it is like a humor mechanism. But sometimes it is like, OK, I need to do what I need to do to be safe. You know, like I might make sure that I have my keys in my hand or I might I'm going to double check that my car doors are locked or something like that. Um but yeah, you do kind of run that risk of it consuming you. Um, like, I don't want to like live in fear. I don't want to constantly be thinking that someone's out to get me. But it does kind of give you that awareness of there, unfortunately, are bad people and bad things out there that could happen. Um, I don't know. I, hopefully, I'm not the only one who feels that. Well, since you said that, do you have a significant other? I do not. Maybe like there's like a maybe one percent chance they'll murder. (laughs) There's always a one percent chance they're gonna murder you, no matter what. I mean, listen, you never know. Do you feel that way about? Yes. (laughs) Trust no bitch. (laughs) You know, it could be. Oh no. It could be one of my roommates. You don't know. You know, like I mean, Mm like, do I do I think that like leads me to treat them like differently? No, but. Sometimes people fucking kill people, man. And like sometimes people have psychotic breaks and they don't think they're going to kill you and then they fucking kill you. I mean, you just like you run that risk. It's like at a risk that you <laughs> that you're accepting whenever you decide you're going to get into a relationship. Mm-hmm. You can do your best to screen, right? To like screen out the people that are most likely to murder you, but sometimes they still murder you. I do think too that kind of as a part of this, I've seen a rise in conversation about mental health and, you know, red flags in relationships and and things like that, um, that maybe we just didn't talk about, you know, back in like the 80s, 90s, you just didn't talk about that stuff. And nowadays, it's, you know, you could go online and Google a list of red flags, and <laughs> you'd know exactly what to look for. And sometimes that, again, might lean towards the paranoia side of it. But I think it has brought up that conversation of like, what is a healthy relationship? You know, what what are these toxic behaviors that I might need to avoid in my relationship or keep an eye out for? Or how do I notice if my significant other or even, you know, a family member like a brother or something? What are some things that might tell me that they might be struggling with their mental health? Like, what are some things I can do? Because a lot of times when you find these, especially these really crazy cases where, you know, someone's just gone off the deep end very rarely does that just happen, right? There's usually something leading up to that and either nobody noticed or nobody did anything about it. Um, And those conversations, I feel like, have been really positive in the true crime community of, you know, hey, how do we stop this from happening? Not just by, you know, oh, don't date a, a toxic guy, but like, how do we prevent those toxic behaviors 
from the beginning, you know, yeah. um, it kind of, I mean, this is a, a really broad conversation, but even going back to like, how do we raise our children to be respectful of others? How do we, you know, I mean, and I'm using again, men as the, the broad topic here, but like, how do we raise our boys to be men who don't abuse women? Because that's yeah. a big part of it. Um, and so again, these are things we didn't talk about, you know, back in the seventies, eighties, nineties. And now it's such a big conversation that I think is really important. And true crime is a big piece of that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there are definitely patterns too. I mean, especially with like serial killers, but even with non-serial killers, like there are, you know, a lot of times there are overlaps in the way these, that these people behaved or like, you know, a lot of serial killers were raised in really, really, really broken homes and like under really, really like, you know, abusive circumstances. And like, that's something that, you know, schools could be looking out for, you know, there are like, there are things that like could and should be put in place to like be checking on people generally. Yeah. And I think those are such important conversations, you know, um, you know, kind of going into my, my full-time job, like I do work in a school, especially with, with small children, elementary age. And like, we have wonderful guidance counselors. We have mental health specialists who work in our school. And is it so important to recognize those behaviors and recognize that abuse so that you can help them? You know, because of course, I mean, not everyone who's abused grows up to be a serial killer. I mean, that's obvious, but we can help those children who are experiencing those things so much better now than we could, you know, back when the Ted Bundys of the world were roaming around um mm -hmm. and so that's again that's another piece of it like how can we help victims when they're young or when they're first experiencing these things before it turns into something dangerous or deadly yeah that's kind of a deep topic <laughs> joy how does your i don't know slash you know <laughs> you don't have to like dive deep into this if you don't want to but i am someone that's pretty like anti-prison and um sometimes it's like damn you know like true crime really does expose you to like some of like the worst specimens of people that exist um and for me that like interacts interestingly it's like okay i still don't really think prisons are just but like i also believe that like there are some you know fraction of a percent of people that Rick really just can't be out in the world. Um, I don't know. How does, do you have thoughts on that? How do you feel about that? I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I always have a lot of thoughts. Um, and I am not an expert on this by, by any stretch of the imagination. So take what I say with a grain of salt, but you know, as an educator, I know at least from my experience that the truth of the school to prison pipeline, um, you know, that's mm -hmm. kind of like a buzzword that you hear sometimes on the news. You know, it's a talking point and all these things, but it is a legitimate thing. Um, and I don't know the stats on this. So, you know, I'm sure someone <laughs> will, will let me know what, where I'm wrong. But I do know that um, specifically children of color and children in marginalized communities are definitely disproportionately affected by this. Um, so I work in a really rural community. Um, it's very low in the socioeconomic ladder. Um, and we see that a lot of the, the punishments tend to be harsher. And I don't, I'm not speaking 
specifically about like my school or anything. I thankfully work in a wonderful school in a wonderful district. Um, but you see that across the board, especially in the the poor communities, children of color are disproportionately punished. They're disproportionately suspended or um, expelled. And those things, the more often a child is suspended or su- expelled, it directly relates to their chances of being eventually put into juvenile or in, in, in the system at some point in their life. Um, mm. And again, I don't know all the stats to that. I'm sure there's so much more research that I just, so I can't speak super intelligently about that, but I've seen it just from my own, you know, I've been in education, this will be my 20th year. Um, mm-hmm. So I've seen it in a lot of different ways. And I am also, you know, not super pro prison by any means, but um, <laughs> cause you know, I mean, it really it is when you take a, a deep look at the history of it, it is um, modern slavery in a lot of ways. and. Um, I do think you're right though. Like there are people who need to not be out in the community. So like, what's the answer to that? You know, like, how do we, how do we truly reform our prison system? Because I do think like there needs to be something and, you know, not, not everyone can just be like, oh, here you go. Slap on the wrist. You know, like, unfortunately there are people who are intentionally and brutally harming others. And we can't just let that slide. So I don't have any answers to that, but I think it's a really important conversation that, you know, you see a lot in the true crime community too. And how many, you know, wrongful convictions and things like that. Like it's a huge, huge umbrella of yeah. things. It's just a mess. Like the prison system is a mess in our country and I don't know how to fix it, but but surely there has to be something that we can do. And I think true crime also can can play a part in that. Like just again, like that accountability, that transparency of like, this is actually happening. We need to have this conversation of how it can be fixed in our country, whatever the solution is. Yeah. Ultimately, like, I think it's such a fringe case. Like these people that like, you know, these people that we're talking about that like are so like, you know, like intentionally and consistently like harming other people are like so few and far between that. I think that it's almost not even like, you know, worth bringing into the conversation until we get there. Cause there's, there's so much reform that has to be done before we can even get to that point. Right. Um, but it is something that like, I do think about cause it is something that I, you know, I think eventually will have to be dealt with, but like, you know, first let's get like comprehensive, you know, medical care and medical support and like, you know, mental health support for people. And we might be able to, I, I firmly believe that if we alleviate a lot of the, the problems especially healthcare problems and like you know uh financial inequities that happen in our country that we'll see a drastic reduction in you know people committing violent offenses and fund our schools please yeah that'd be sick too <laughs> giving us more access to to mental health resources in you know in the K12 realm would be so beneficial you know up the line as you know, because you think about how formative our childhood is to us. I mean, and I had a pretty great child childhood, but it was very formative for me. It really formed who I was as a person. So, you know, as if you're a child and you don't have the support that you need, you know, and a lot of that you get at school. So that's my little plug for giving schools more money. <laughs> nice. Um, I don't know if I have any more questions. Do you have any more questions as well? You know, any thoughts? How are you, how do you how are you feeling after this conversation on like the institution of true crime? 
Well, I mean, I, I, I still feel really ambivalent about it because I'm not really a part of true crime <laughs> community. But, like, um, the only last question that I have is, like, do, do either... I mean, I feel like I've heard this narrative in the past, especially when there have been high-profile cases of people like, um, like Dylan Roof, for example, right? Where I've heard people on the left say, oh, we shouldn't associate these types of criminals with mental health and mental illness because it's going to make is going to stigmatize people who are mentally ill as being dangerous in my Uh mind that seems like a very obviously kind of ridiculous statement because like i think by literally like the way we define mental health wanting to go shoot like a bunch of people is like really just part of the definition of like not being mentally healthy but like i don't know do either of you have any opinions on that like why like whether or not that narrative has any legitimacy to it yeah i mean i think that like <laughs> like any like all the takes given by like by people like by, by politicians on school shooters i think are bad whether they're like left or right you know it's like i think that clearly as you were saying isabel like you have to be mentally unwell to commit this kind of crime right like and i think that it's not, you know, I don't think it's useful to portray, um, you know, these people as like monsters who just wanted to kill a lot of people because that you get to blind yourself to the actual issue, right? Which is, um, in my opinion, like access to guns is part of it. And also like poor mental health support for people in this country is a huge part of it as well for me. Um, I think, you know, I think that like politicians are are often like, slinging phrases and buzzwords for you know to get votes on a certain thing right i think it's like we in this circumstance we see a huge kind of the left are like no not mental health guns and the right are like no mental health and and access to violent video games not guns at all right like clearly the answer is both me i think you're exactly right i think it speaks also to our need to put everything in a neat little box you know, and nuance is not something that you find in our news cycle these days. You know, <laughs> like you said, like it's a talking point. Like it sounds really good if I say it like this and people will vote for me if I say it like that. But for, you know, you brought up Dylan Roof. I mean, he was in a lot of ways very mentally disturbed, but also a victim of his circumstances um, sucked into, you know, the white supremacist groups like there's more than one issue at play here, you know, and to say like, oh, well, we won't talk about his mental health or, oh, let's not talk about the Nazi stuff. You can't do that. Like that's doing the victims a disservice too. like, I I think some of this also speaks to true crime fans, quote unquote, our need to understand why these things happen. You know, we want to explore, okay, why did he do this? What were the, the many reasons And it can't just be something that you, you know, drop a line on CNN one day. Like there are some deep things that you need to explore. And I think that's where true crime can come in, too. That's why people are, you know, endlessly fascinated with with serial killers, because it's like, why would someone do that? I wouldn't do that. So why would this person do it? You know, and um, I think even today, you know, unfortunately, with the prevalence of school shooters and things like that we want to know why we want to know why someone would do something so horrible. And sometimes the answer is not what we want it to be. 
sometimes the answer is just really, really complicated. And, you know, it doesn't always just make for um, good talking points on the news. And the answer sometimes involves acknowledging truths that you don't want to acknowledge. Exactly. Like, like, you know, this person did feel wronged by this community for some reason, as asinine as that reason was. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much for coming on with us. Thank you for having me. This was really fun. Um, yeah, you feel like I, I don't know. I, I feel like I've been waiting for the right person to have this conversation with. And like, <laughs> I was like, dude, someone that creates a true crime podcast is literally the right person <laughs> to have this conversation. Well, with. I am glad to be the one. <laughs> um, OK, so you were talking about the case that like sticks with you. If, what is your case that sticks with you? And a okay, little, a little well, bit about why. So many. I will say like the big case that sticks with me will always be John Benet Ramsey. And I know yeah. that's the answer for a lot of people. And I think part of it is because it's so infuriating and <laughs> it should be solvable and it's not. And it just makes me crazy. Yeah. Um, but I think like of some of the smaller cases, um, you know, like uh, Faye Sweat, like was the little girl I was talking about. And part of her story sticks with me, I think, because, you know, she was the age of my students. You know, and it happened, you know, right down the road from me and she was getting off the school bus. And as a teacher, I think that one just hit me especially hard because the teacher community in this area was especially affected. Um, So that one sticks with me. And, you know, like at least once a month I drive past her neighborhood and it just I I never want to forget that feeling of, you know, my heart going out to her family and. You know, I don't want it to just be like another story. Um, yeah. So those would probably be my two. I mean, there's a million. I have, again, like an obsessive personality with some of these yeah. things. But those would be my two, I think. I think for me, mine is this is one of the first stories. I have I have a couple, but I'm going to try and limit them. One is. Uh, I'll, I'll give one missing person and one one murdered individual. My missing person, missing person is a guy named Bryce Laspisa. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah, of course you are. Where is he? Hey, where the <laughs> fuck is he? Um, he just like, it, it's so wild to me because it was like one of the first cases that I, my partner who got me into true crime was like, you should listen to this one. I think, you'd, I think you'd find this interesting. And it's just a guy that was acting really, really, really weird. And for like a couple weeks leading to his disappearance and then just, fucking disappeared off the face of the earth and uh where is he great question i don't know (laughs) um the second one is a dc homicide actually uh a guy named robert juan um i don't know if you've heard of this person joyce but or i called you joyce joy um but this guy was just like Stating a night at his friend's house in DC and was murdered, and the 911 call was weird. And then they came to the scene, and all of the people in the house were had just taken a shower. And the guy that was murdered had did indeed have a stab wound, but had no blood anywhere on him or on the scene at all. And um his friends that called the cops 
were like, yeah, we're like, we're performing, like we're compressing the wound, like, and they claimed to be doing all that, yet there was no blood anywhere. Um, and it was just really, really, really mysterious circumstances. Like, I'm not, I'm not, it doesn't stick with me because of like, clearly these guys in the house did it. Like, that's clear, but like, what the fuck happened? <laughs> that's so weird. I had um, not heard of that one. I'll have to look into Crime that. Junkie, Crime Junkie did an episode on it. I would, it's, it's, I think his last name is spelled W O N E, Robert Wone. Um, highly recommend. It's yeah, that a sounds wild, really wild. Episode. I, I will say, despite the fact that I don't really listen to true crime stories, I did, I was told recently about this, this, um, Lululemon employee who, who like yes. supposedly was like stealing money or something from the cash register and then someone confronted her about it and then she like just murdered everyone in the store? Fucking like, killed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that, that happened. Is, yeah. The Lululemon murders. Yeah. That's a pretty well known one. That one's, every time I hear about that one, I'm like, but why? Like, why <laughs> would you? <laughs> insane it's, it's no, but the, the funniest so part of it for anyone who hasn't heard of it is just that like she then staged it as if like you know someone had come in and murdered everyone but like it, it was all on camera yeah. so like you know she was like taking the shoes and like doing these bloody footprints out the door or something and then tying herself up and like the police came and were just like uh you know yeah number one it was footage. poorly staged and number two it yeah. was filmed yeah um cool well Joy, this is your time. Please plug whatever you want to plug. Okay, well, um, my podcast is called Bite Sized Crime. Um, I've been doing it for about a year now, about to hit episode 50, which I'm pretty excited about. Um, I would love for anyone who is interested in true crime to give it a listen. Again, the episodes are su super short. Most are right around 15 minutes. I think my longest episode is 20. Um, so they're really easy to listen to, you know, when you're in the car or brushing your teeth or whatever you need to do. Um, and of course you can follow me on Instagram. It is at bite sized crime pod. I'm on Facebook, but I don't really do anything on Facebook. So not worth the follow there, but definitely um, Instagram is where I am. So I would love a follow. I'd love a listen um, and share it with your friends. Cool. And as always, you can find us at I'm the villain pod. That's our Gmail. That's our Twitter. And that's our Instagram. Otherwise. Bye. <laughs>